Our next speaker is uh, somebody who, uh, whom I've known for years and who has been one of the few, one of the, I have a very few people in the journalism uh, business or craft or both who have been the, the kind of touchstones of my career, the people who mentored me and gave me that push or pull or whatever we want to call these things at just the right times. And this is Tom Stites, who I have known forever, I think, now, and who is, is one of those people and who is really one of the most thoughtful people about journalism and its meaning and importance. Uh, and we're, we're lucky to have Tom here. He gave a speech a couple of weeks ago at the Media Giraffe Conference that some of you may have attended that uh, when I saw it, I asked if I could post it, and I did, and we got a flood of stuff, a uh, flood of traffic and comments. Doc put it up on his blog, a couple of other folks, and it's really set off a conversation of the best kind about journalism and democracy and, and informed citizenry, something that in the end is what we really care about if we're doing journalism. And Tom is going to talk for a bit, and, and again, we're going to have a conversation about uh, several things, including how do we, how do we get uh, back to the idea of journalism for everybody, not just the people who can uh, afford what's in the advertising in the Boston Globe. And, and really part of that is how do we make sure what we do for everybody has a lot of quality and is meaningful. So, uh, Tom, no, your, your microphone. My mic. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I bring myself up to this little yeah. thing? Yeah. I like to gesticulate with both hands, so I'm going to... Uh, I rig myself here. Thanks. Yeah, we'll need these. This is my stupid pet trick act. <laughs> Still caught. It's still caught. 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 Well, I don't need to be able to see where the Savannah on button is. It's caught in this thing. I know. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There we go. It's only hooked through part of my glasses, not the whole thing. All right. I am Tom Stites. Thank you. Thank. That was really rather moving to hear you say that. Dan and I have worked together for an awful long time, starting back in the nineteen late seventies, I think. And uh, at lots of places, the New York Times, the Kansas City Times, and all kinds of different ways. Um, I'm uh, pretty much in the margins of this group. I've followed Dan's career and his fascinating sort of trailblazing uh, in, 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 in the world of citizen media. And I've watched with fascination and taken part but never directly as a blogger, although I've just gotten my own domain name and I'm probably going to start doing that as I re retire from the job that I have now. Um, the thing that strikes me most deeply about Dan's thought is its humility. 
the idea that his readers know more than him is not something that has uh, dawned on most journalists I know. Uh, humility is not a broadly held value in most newsrooms uh, or most people uh, have a great need to be heard and, and think their voice matters a lot. Dan has a strong ego, I know this, but it's a healthy one, and he's able to make that, that step back. Uh, the idea that, that Dan's readers know more than he is really strong with me right now because I know you all know a lot more than I do, so I'm here not so much to speak to you as I am to hear and learn and hope that we can, I can help you uh, all learn together by putting up a sort of a matrix for us to think in. Um, let me start with the word citizen. So Dan runs the Center for Citizen Journalism. We are all here as citizens, and we're all here in one way or another as journalists. Um, the, the word citizen has some very uh, uh, interesting layers of meaning. Uh, there are not many of us here with white beards, but one of my compatriots back there in the back row uh, has asked a couple of questions about the political uh, meaning of what goes on in the work of the people in this room uh, in its relationship to power. And these are things we don't often talk out loud about, but the fact is that every day that we uh, live, we have power, and as citizens, we have power. And the question is not so much whether we have it, but how much we have, how much we want, and what we do with the power that we inherently have as citizens and as journalists. And so I'm not going to go on about that. I'm not going to drill into that. But I just wanted that to be in our minds as we have the conversation that we're about to have. Um, I am an adherent of the thinking of a man named Neil Postman. How many people in this room have ever encountered a, uh, his thought, and particularly a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which uh, is an enduringly important book and has, it, at least for me, the central meaning is his sort of updating or, or perfection, perhaps, of, of uh, the, the, the concept that the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said, Postman says, no, no, that's not quite right. A medium is the metaphor. A medium is the metaphor for the way we think. And that the entire governmental and political system of the United States of America is based on literate thinking. Thinking that is based on absorption of the written word that the written word excites reason and thought, and that image media, as someone said, I wrote this down, Mika said, people are more moved by sound in pictures than by words, and that's true, because the image media bypass the critical f facilities and go straight into your emotions. Uh, it's one of the reasons that manipulators are so good with images. Uh, so I'm, I, I understand. Uh, I'm not a total troglodyte. And I understand that the word reader has fallen on uh, uh, sort of poor times, uh, particularly among people who work in electronic forms of media. 
But I'm here with that understanding and understanding the, the, the reason for that that, 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 that journalism is not just merely the reception of stuff that editors pick for you to read, but things that you can take part in. It has always been this, but it's getting much, much easier for this to happen. I mean, Tom Paine <laughs> did okay. Uh, that that it is more than that, but I care deeply about democracy, and I'm sure everybody in this room does. And if we don't care that people read quality journalism from many sources or any sources, if we don't care about that, we're not caring enough about democracy. So what I'd like to do today is try to draw out the room to explore what the emerging media that we represent today can do to engage lots and lots of people to achieve market penetration, as the marketers say or the publishers say, that would be the equivalent of a, uh, a county seat weekly in a rural place or have the market penetration of Facebook.com on college campuses where everybody gets it and looks at it and uses it. The, the piece about Facebook in the New Yorker recently says that the average uh, 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 participant is on 20 minutes a day. I mean, let's not go to MySpace. These are, these are, these are definable communities. So what, Lisa, for example, I don't know how many people uh, in Watertown actually read your, your, your publication or in Westport, or in the people who are, are doing this with real sophistication and care, what can we do to expand that? What can we do to get more people engaged in, in digital, in it being consumers of digital journalism? And then, second question is, how do we get more and more quality journalism, which I'll define in a moment, to them through the digital media? Because they're not, most people are not getting it from newspapers anymore. I'm going to say two more things and then open it up. One is that I've put together, if, if anyone who cares to read a, a long speech, I've got one, and you can find it on Dan's blog. It's the first thing under uh, recent comments. If you just click there, you can read it. And there, in there, there are, are numbers that, that dissect the, the, the loss of readership of daily newspapers. Uh, in a way, I, I'm using the, the uh, data from the Pew uh, Center uh, for, for the people in the press, but I, I asked them to cut the data for me differently, and they were kind enough to do that. Uh, I asked them to cut the data, the readership change data, by household income. Uh, and not by educational attainment, which is the way they customarily do things. I believe among the upper middle class folks who are, are really comfortable with abstractions and data, there's, there is the belief that those things are the same, and they're not. Uh, we, we have 70% of the people in the United States do not have college degrees, but it is a larger number than that percentage than that that work for hourly wages. There are a lot of people with college degrees working for hourly wages. You know, it is, they are not all people who sit in conference rooms at Harvard, even though we may believe that. Instinctively, it's not true. And I don't mean that pejoratively about the people in this room. It's just very easy to think that everybody's like us, and they're not. 
So uh, let me just give you a couple of numbers between the Pew survey in 1998 and the one in 2004. If you lived in a household that earned between 70, I'm sorry, between 50 and $75,000 a year, more people read newspapers in 2004 than in 1998 when I asked the question, did you read a newspaper yesterday? More, not less. Now, the, the overall is down significantly. It's down by six percentage points in that same, but not among people who are making 50 to 75,000 bucks a year. Hmm? I'm sorry, April 98, 98 and 2004, yeah. Uh, and people who make 75 and up, there is a modest decline, or it's not all that modest, but it's, it's less than the overall decline from 60% in 98, saying that they had read a newspaper yesterday, to 55%. But those surveys did not say, do you read newspaper content online? And I think we all know that the higher up you go on the socioeconomic scale, the greater the likelihood of engagement of, with news online. So you, there's no, there, there, there are no numbers anywhere that I can find that assemble all this so that you've got a complete, but it's not hard to extrapolate that. But then when you go on down the scale, people who make between 30 and 50,000 bucks were 48% reading newspapers saying yes in 1998 to 35% in 2004. That is 13 points, but that's a 27% decline in eight years. And, it, it, and it, there's similar fall-offs of, of more than 20% uh, in people who make less money than that. So what we have is a class divide going on here in terms of people having access to quality reporting. Now, I do not believe that all newspapers present nothing but quality reporting. But there aren't many sources of quality reporting other than on a local basis. Uh, the big metropolitan newspapers, the national newspapers, to an extent, uh, 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 television network news do present at least some quality reporting. And by that, I'd like to give you a definition. I really tend to call it serious reporting, and hopefully it achieves quality. Serious reporting, by my definition, is based in verified fact and pass through mature professional judgment. It has integrity. It engages its readers. Excuse me, there's that word readers again. It engages them with compelling stories and it appeals to their capacity for reason. This is the information that people need so that they can make good life decisions and good citizenship decisions. There aren't many places you can go for that. And the biggest source has been shrinking, but almost entirely, among people who make less than 50000 bucks a year or live in households with less than $50,000 a year in income. And what that does is essentially discard them as citizens on the part of the, of the organized press. And what they have left to them is television, and they have manipulative... Uh, opinion on cable channels. They have the, the vapid sound bites of network news. And there is a, a bifurcation in terms of what 
is available to people by class. So, with that in mind, and trying to, to move a little bit beyond, but not entirely beyond, the hyper-local, carefully presented journalism, how do we, in this room, move the emerging media that we represent forward in its emergence to the place that it can be helpful to the needs of the democracy, to strengthening the democracy and bringing people into engagement to use their inherent power, however they will, in the democracy that is the foundation of our nation. So that's the, uh, uh, the challenge. And uh, now you all, under, uh, please, uh, please educate me. <laughs> Here you want to use this? <laughs> Tom's speech is linked uh, at the uh, wiki on the conference wiki, so you don't you don't have to go hunting for it on my blog. Yes, there's a guy I actually know. Hi, Dan. <laughs> At the risk of, of delaying the conversation about what some solutions might be, uh, one of the things that strikes me about what you're saying about newspapers and the more affluent audience is uh, an old anecdote about Rupert Murdoch, which I'm sure you've heard, but I'm not sure everybody in this room has heard. Uh, many years ago, he had greatly succeeded in increasing the circulation of the New York Post. <laughs> and advertising was not following. Um, the major department stores simply were not taking about out ads. So Murdoch went around to these various advertisers. This may be an apocryphal story, but if it isn't true, it should be. <laughs> and, uh, and said, look, I've doubled the circulation. You're not buying an ad. What do we have to do to convince you to buy an ad? And, and supposedly this department store executive said to Murdoch, Rupert, you don't understand. Your readers are our shoplifters. <laughs> but, but in line with that, and, and maybe this will help us frame this discussion a little bit, I was wondering what you make of the fact that the, new, that the few newspapers that you can think of that do attract something of a, of a less affluent audience, the New York Post, the Boston Herald in, in this uh, area, for instance, um, do not engage in the kind of quality journalism that you're talking about. Essentially, they pander. They're, they're the equivalent of, of TV. Uh, what is it? I mean, these newspapers are not always terribly successful, so their pandering is not necessarily a success either. Um, I mean, what what does it say, and how does that help us get to where you're trying to get to this afternoon? Well, um, I'm going to restrain myself from giving my speech again, <laughs> but I, I think that that you 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 nail something there. I, I, there are only, I think, five tabloids left in America. Uh, one in, in Boston, two in New York, one in Trenton, New Jersey, and one in Philadelphia, and the rest of them are gone. Newsday is in a tabloid format and has some tabloid tendencies, but is, is not in its heart a tabloid newspaper. Um, and you're right, for the most part. Uh, every so often, the New York Daily News actually does some journalism that matters and that people read it outside of the, the, their normal readership. 
but that makes the, the need all the greater. Uh, it, it used to be, well, the good old days weren't so good. <laughs> For the most part, there were places that they were, largely not in such large cities, but Louisville, uh, Kentucky, Des Moines, St. Louis, places like that had big, muscular, important daily newspapers that served everybody. I was just, I, came, I drove up here yesterday, or most of the way, and the rest this morning from Annapolis, Maryland, and I was looking at the Annapolis Capitol, and there's a little house ad in there say, we serve nine out of ten households in Anne Arundel County. Well, that's 90% market penetration. Are they really doing that? I want to call them and say, how do you, what do, you, do you actually work toward that, or does it just happen, or what? But I looked at its pages, and on the uh, on this Saturday paper, they had four sections devoted to uh, real estate advertising. And the front page, if you look at the most local even dailies, and particularly the metro dailies, you're getting multi-million dollar houses. You get all the stuff that, that people who make less than $50,000 a year, it, it, it's actually not just not useful to them, it's almost an affront. You know, it, it, it's the kind of thing where you're actually just turning your back on these folks. They had a guy, they had a, a local columnist writing about answering <laughs> questions. I want to get rid of the crummy aluminum siding on my house and put up uh, vinyl siding, and what do I have to do today? And he answers the questions, you know? So that paper has got stuff that is relevant to the lives of people who aren't so affluent. Hey, read the Boston Globe and tell me if you can find that. You can find some quality journalism in the Boston Globe, but you can't find that. You really can't find that. Uh, and it, it goes from there. But again, I, I, I thank you, Dan, for uh, giving me the excuse to expound a little more. Uh, but I, I, I really would love to be able to draw the group out on the, the deeper question of how do we get this emerging media to emerge some more toward being a significant contributor to a more, much more deeply and, more, and better informed nation of citizens. If we're going to be citizen journalists, let's, how do we do that better? Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Robert Cox. I'm uh, president of the Media Bloggers Association. I was at the lunch, ah. so you don't need to repeat your speech for me. Thank you I very much. <laughs> um, I was, I was rea really interested in your comment about uh, serious reporting based on verified fact, but passed through mature professional judgment because that, of course, would fly in the face of what most bloggers do which is that they're writing and publishing themselves and it's not passing through any filter mm -hmm. that's sort of the, the joy or the drawback, depending on your point of view, uh, <clears throat> to blogging. But um, what I will throw out towards your point of what can we do, I could tell you what our organization um, is, is working to do, which is um, we have, uh, and we'll talk about it in the next section a little bit, but we, we have a legal defense initiative where we represent bloggers uh, who are who are sued or threatened with the suit, and um, we have uh, been involved in a number of cases. We have a number of attorneys who volunteer their time, but what I'm much more interested in is not getting sued in the first place. And so, um, what I'm sorting out now, and invite anybody here who'd like to participate in this discussion uh, later, um, is coming up with um, basically an editorial policy that our members could adopt that would uh, feed into uh, some kind of uh, review uh, if there's any kind of disputes or problems with the content they put up on their site. Basically, the, the goal is really 
to preempt lawsuits, but it also happens to be a path towards bloggers embracing some kind of editorial ethical policy in what they do. And the way I, 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 I haven't sorted this all out yet, but the way I think that's going to work is, is that the bloggers will have a policy on their site which will be drafted by the organization. Um, and part of that will be that if they can't sort out a reader complaint, somebody who's going to litigate against them or has issue with what they wrote, that there will be the option for the reader or complainant to refer it to the organization where there will be a committee of attorneys and editors and people who are professionals to review the matter, issue a finding, and then require that the member abide by that uh, a finding. And if they don't and they get sued, then we wash our hands of them. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great tool. I, I hear you saying, or do I hear you saying that, that you're going to be sort of a, a resource uh, to bloggers so that there's a bunch of wisdom up there that they can draw from as they make their own decisions, or does this only happen uh, after the fact when someone presents a complaint? Well, the starting point would be drafting a sound policy right. to put onto the site. And so we're going to, I'm going down to the Pointer Institute in a couple of weeks to get some of their input. Um, we have some members who are in this room who are, don't know it yet, but they're going to help me right. uh, do that as well. But come <laughs> up with something, and I, and, and I should say, in a couple of weeks I'll be out at the Society for Professional Journalists uh, conference speaking there on blogging ethics in a couple of different sessions and getting some input from those folks as well. And one of the things that they do is they have a, uh, an ethics hotline, and that might be something that we take a look at too, and even partner with them on that as to what does a blogger do when they're faced with the question because they're not going to have what you're suggesting is they're not going to have the mature filter, uh, you know, news filter to go through. So what, how can they get that if they are sitting home in their pajamas? Well, I think this is terrific. And I, what, when I talk about mature professional judgment, it doesn't necessarily have to be your own. I mean, if you've got access to it and you, and you can learn from it, then you, get, then you have more mature uh, 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 professional judgment in, in, in your work if you're operating independently. And I didn't, by saying that, mean to exclude the people. Betsy Devine, you know, I mean, this is marvelous stuff. Uh, but I hope that you will have Betsy and, and others who want to follow that level of ambition as a, as a sole practitioner have got access to the sort of thing that you're talking about. I think that's really important stuff, foundational stuff. Sir, who's... That's I should Tom, over here. Okay, here you go. Okay, if you got the mic, go. Right. Go white beards. Uh, my question is, it's really, it's a question, but I have a point of view. It's, it's uh, how can you not really turn to education as the issue? Um, if, if in, the numbers you give are really distressing. I mean, the idea of a 27-point decrease in basically people who do even basic reading in a world where all the power really is held by people who are the extreme readers, just to put it very succinctly. And people who were first interested in digital media, who weren't computer scientists, were interested in an educational revolution. If you go back into the late 70s and early 80s, we began thinking we were going to change the world of education and produce a new kind of equity in the classroom through digital media and digital technologies. And there were a lot of really interesting experiments that preceded the Internet. And in fact, the Internet really set us back. Because hmm. as soon as the Internet became available and the politicians jumped onto it and they propagated the notion that the information superhighway was going to produce a kind of educational equity simply by virtue of having a connection to the Internet, we threw out 
tens of years of educational theory and criticism that tried to say that there were other forms of disequilibrium in the society that you had to address in order to equalize educational opportunity, and that technology could only be a small part of it. And, and so now, when the Internet has become a more flexible medium, it's not a, just a push medium anymore, and there are all kinds of interesting interactive possibilities, and it doesn't require high-end development to do that kind of interactive work, I'm concerned that a lot of the people who are interested in Web 2.0 and social software are also trivializing its use. And I think even if we choose to use it in diverse ways, there ought to be some consensus in that community to turn back to the challenge of revolutionizing education and really trying to contend with the disequilibrium in American education, which is what produces the public that I think represents that 27%. Right. Well, here, here, I, I, I would I take that just a little farther in the conversation, which is that I don't think people have stopped reading. I, I, I went looking for data uh, from existing polling uh, 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 that explored levels of reading activity. And I cannot find exactly what I'm looking for or haven't been able to find it yet. But I do find all kinds of data that, re- that, that seem to show that across the board, people read a lot in this country. If you think about it, I mean, let's, let, let's not be as classist as, um, as uh, the, the, the apocryphal uh, department store magnate. Not all of the New York Post readers are shoplifters. Uh, the, the, that the, the number of people who read, you know, romance novels, mass market paperbacks, all, the, the, the mass market paperback sales are up and up and up and up. They're reading. They just don't read newspapers anymore because the newspapers have ceased to be relevant to them. And I, that's a part of my, I'm not, I, I don't want to take the time on that. But I think you're right. I think all of this has to do with distribution. There's a distribution. How do you get stuff to them that, that they want to read that's relevant to their lives that tells them how to put the vinyl siding on their houses as opposed to how to buy a $2 million house they can't afford? That, that, that then they, I think that people would come back. I, was, I, I happened to drive through Worcester the other day, and I stopped in what turned out to be this, it was a, a, a convenience store, we call it now, but it used to be the corner candy store. Still exists in Worcester. Worcester is a time warp. But you walked in, and, and there was this big flat full of newspapers for sale. And there was candy and lottery tickets, and, and they sold coffee and two or three other things and, and more lottery tickets. This is where newspapers used to be sold, was in the corner store, in, in blue-collar neighborhoods. And they sold them by the ton, by the ton. And I think that the yearning for, the, for what people used to get from their newspapers in the, in the corner store is still there. But the newspapers that they have accessible to them do not deliver it, nor do we in this room very often deliver very much that is of much use or care or written in the language of the people who are looking to figure out a better way to put vinyl siding on their houses. Uh, And that we need to hold them in our hearts the same way we hold each other in this room as citizens and people who matter and who are worthy of having journalism that is addressed to them in their native language and pay them that respect. And then distribute it widely. That's so I'm really, what I'm hoping here is that we can address two things. One has to do with, with content that matters to people beyond the local. We've, there are people doing that pretty well now. 
but matter that content that matters and distribution, uh, both of which in the in the standard distribution in journalism forms are contracting madly and badly, and we have in this room the opportunity to find new and better ways. Is there anybody on this side had a hand up? Because we I've been not way back in the back. How about this? Let's go over here. Hi, my name is Betsy Morris. I, I live out in Berkeley, California. Um, I really, really appreciate what you're saying, and it's it's tapping into kind of a, a year, many years of thinking about uh, a couple things. One is the distinction between citizenship as a concept of political organization, of meaningful interaction that many of us hold dear, and the other is community, which I think is actually the more the the, the language of relationship and the currency by which people, most people on the planet, uh, um, I believe, actually engage information, ideas, and make choices. And that's through the relationships of the people in their lives that they encounter. Who do I trust? Where am I getting ideas from? Um, and who do I trust? And are any of those people encouraging me to be active or weigh in politically? And I, I bring this up because... Speaking as someone who does spend, you know, an hour a day and has the ability to do so because my livelihood is flexible, uh, reading newspapers, I realize, and lots of education, you know, I'm, I'm a very, it's very easy for me to interact with other people like myself, but we are a, a thin layer. So if I want to deeply engage my, uh, in my case, my community of neighborhood, I have to find other ways of, of interacting because it's not going to be by email. And so I'm just putting it out there that your phrase about how do you distribute the information, and I think that the goal we, we need, I just want to encourage people to let go of the idea of that, that wonderful Greek citizen where every male household, head of household, gets to go and interact in a marketplace of ideas, of wonderful interaction. Meanwhile, everyone else is taking care of the business of life elsewhere, that we maybe rethink the the tools we need to engage more people where they are so that the mom raising three kids at home or the person work, the immigrant family where everybody's working two jobs, how do we reach them? And I think that the tools that I know of from international development work is one, you, you start with the member of the family who's most concerned about the welfare of the whole family. Uh, you in, you inter, intervene at the level usually of the mother, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they'll spread if you if you give them a loan they'll. That's how micro lending works. Absolutely. Um, another tool that I think in that field is comic books. You know we know that music and radio are probably the most widespread of the media. So I think there's a question of well how do we who and we I mean the hyper literate people who like to argue and craft words and. You know, I have a serious relationship with my book collection, <laughs> but if I really wanted to speak to a larger audience, I should be thinking about radio, comic books, because so much information can be conveyed in an image that will speak to me directly, and then the words are only are very small. And so I just want to put out there that if the, the goal, I think, is how do we distribute ideas that can speak to people's interests, we have to, we have to be aware that our interests, people in this room, are not necessarily the same interests, as the majority immigrant working, as you say, hourly workers, you know, yep. and we have to we have to humbly um, say, well, how can I learn to communicate with the greater part of the planet and use the tools that really speak to to tr to the trust that they need to hear what I have to say There's and that for me to the, hear there. 
There's that word humility again. And I do think that's really not an insignificant part. May I, may I say one thing technologically? The young man from Poland uh, was talking about the, the uh, broadband uh, uh, access being really a pretty dear thing in most parts of the world. It's also true in some parts of the socioeconomic distribution of the United States. But in terms of talking not so much about the global application of this, but, but just in, in the United States, the, 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 the penetration of broadband is getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the society. And it, and it will get there to the point, you know, I think we, we're, we are technologically equipped to make a huge contribution to the, the, the strength of the information base that our democracy works with using the level of broadband uh, penetration that we have now. Uh, so, and now, if I could just kind of direct this, it's, this is a neat conversation, but if we want to get practical, does anybody in the room know of people or organizations that are moving to use this technology base to achieve greater distribution of stuff, to, that, that may go beyond the, 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 the local and get the stuff that's beginning to get squeezed out of the national conversation for a lot of people back to them. Does anybody know anybody doing that? No, no, I'm talking just, I, I, just for purposes of this room, as far as I can take it in my own mind, I, I need to think nationally. Yep. And someone has a hand up. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Mark Cohen. I'm a state legislator in Pennsylvania, and I do a lot of writing for... Uh, an interactive website called Philly Blog. And I, I think Philly Blog is a model worth studying because it, it, it doesn't have journalism that meets the standard of being professionally mediated. Uh, people write uh, uh, what they want to write and then anybody else can comment. But it's being increasingly used by regular newspapers and other media sources as a source of data as to, as to what things are happening and what merits further investigation. Uh, it also has many of the attributes that you described in the Maryland newspaper. Uh, people write in and say, I'm planning to move to one of five neighborhoods. Which neighborhood do you think is best? I need a new veterinarian. What, uh, what veterinarian would you recommend? Uh, I, need, I, I need my house to be repaired. What home contractors would you recommend? It's got, it's got a huge amount of, of interactive information giving uh, along with something less than professional journalism, and, and it's rapidly gaining membership and readership. Great. And probably the way trends are going in the next few years, it's going to pass the Philadelphia Daily News, uh, if one of the last tabloids in, uh, in, uh, in, in total readership. Thank you. Uh, somebody over here. This young man has a microphone. You want to go? I do. <laughs> um, although I, I feel bad now because I'm not exactly on the same uh, uh, train of thought that you were moving things along. And um, I was going to say that if we agree that uh, good information is critical uh, to an engaged citizenry, right, that will help enliven and improve our democracy. Uh, it only seems logical to me that we would want to move towards um, public funding of citizen media. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I, we, I'm, I'm sure we would also all agree the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is hardly, like, the best model for this uh, and needs a lot of improving itself. 
Um, but already in other countries, even the UK and others, I mean, I think there's more money being put into interactive media that, that the public can, can engage with uh, that has significant distribution channels built in and educational, uh, you know, uh, centers uh, uh, being funded simultaneously that help train people and yeah. stuff. Do you know uh, of any effort being made to uh, draw significant funding toward um, uh, citizen journalism? I would like to start... Such Let's a go. one at UMass, yeah. if we can. But I mean, no, I don't. I mean, okay. I'm not. I'm but not this is a, this would be a foundational block, yeah. Just like the one that is going to help people have smart legal uh, uh, ideas as they move in, in, in their reporting. So that, I mean, I think like things like that are really crucial. I don't know. Do you know? Tell, tell us about it. Yes. Uh, actually, I'm Jean-Baptiste Souffron. I'm the legal uh, officer of the Wikimedia Foundation. And I will begin in September a show on uh, the French National Radio where, like, they contacted me, like, two months ago and they asked for, let's say, disruptive ideas. So I told them, like, a lot of things about interacting with the public and helping the public to actually contribute content the way you would like, well... And really crazy stuff like uh, let's give money to the public so that they will have enough money to travel to that interesting place where they would like to go and stuff like this. And actually, uh, to my own surprise, they accepted. And they said, oh, well, they don't want like to make it an entire show because I don't have enough radio experience. But uh, they told me uh, I will have to, in- I will be by basically the joint host of the show every day at midnight, and I will have a budget. And the budget is directly aimed at this, like uh, helping people to make, like, I don't know if it be, can be called like grassroots journalism or stuff like this, because it's more, it's, it's more about art and culture and stuff like this. It's not about local news or these kind of things, but still, like, uh, we already made a few contacts with people uh, in the field of video games and stuff like this. We try to find stuff that would be both interesting and where we easily find the critical mass in order to have actually interesting stuff and uh, people who actually really need help. You see what I mean? Right. Thank you. I would, I would say that, that, that what you're saying dovetails with a woman who suggested that comic books reach, reach a lot of people. We need not say that journalism it shouldn't be entertaining, that it should only be deep citizenship building thought. I think that we all know uh, from, from uh, being students that there are lots of ways to learn and that there are lots of ways to make the castor oil go down more easily and that that is an important aspect. And so I think what you're saying is pretty useful. Uh, yes, yeah. sir. Uh, just a couple observations. You, you mentioned about reading. Well, that Pew study that you did that actually more people, the younger people are actually reading more than people in their 30s. And there's like 41% read. The other thing is, though, you know, you kind of made that reference back to the little candy store and stuff, and that's nice, but where young people are meeting every day are places like MySpace and Facebook. Yep. And rather than sort of discount those and the vernacular for that age, too, and this is what Lawrence Lessig talks about, it is visual and audio. It's not necessarily the printed word. Yep. And then taking this, just one more little observation. I mean, newspapers are important, we all say, to democracy, and of course they are. On the other hand, you could have a country like Poland that had absolutely no free newspapers that formed a democracy at the same time. 
So there's a whole lot of other forces out there, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be through our conventional news sources that can strengthen citizenship and democracy. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, and that's what I'm hoping we're going to learn, because I, I think the newspapers are essentially beca- making themselves irrelevant to an awful lot of people, and that, that, was, that has been the traditional place where most of the serious reporting has been done, and it's being withdrawn from a lot of folks, uh, and somebody else has got to do it. I, I, would, I would go with you and throw out the idea to the group that if you want to reach people online, you go to where they already are. And it may be my, my space, and it may be Facebook, and there may be other ways that where people are already going, if you can then introduce them to some stuff, that's a good idea. And you could write it in their own language of the people who, who habituate those sites. Hi, I'm Tish Greer, and I'm a writer. And I was out at, uh, we've met before. Yes. <laughs> and I was out at BlogHer over the um, last weekend, which was a women's blogging conference. And I got to talking to um, Emily McCann, who did a Katrina relief effort. Mommy bloggers are a big group, and they are a lot online. And what Emily and her, um, one of her blogging partners who worked on the Katrina thing, what they're going to do is start a site called The Motherhood, which is going to start tackling political issues, um, which is going to sort of ratchet up the interest and things in the mommy blogging community. And it's very important because these women are online a lot. They are their own little... They're not a little group. They're pretty big. They're they're a a real force um, possibly to be reckoned with, and they're starting to be more interested in political issues as their their children are getting older. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. It's kind of a going back to the 70s and the mother advocate, ad, whatever the word is, from the, op- the 1970s. That'll open an interesting new door, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Anybody? Um, yeah. I was going to offer, a, if I understand your request, I was going to offer two uh, possibilities, avenues that I think are really interesting uh, one, actually, Joan Blades, the found, co-founder of MoveOn.org, mm-hmm. her latest thing is moms upri- MomsRising.org. Mm-hmm. Whether she's going to put money into it, I don't know, but she's published a book, and she's looking to find t- tie-in. She may have been at Blogger, for all I know, although she might be a lurker. Um, <laughs> but I put, the, I put that just to follow up on that uh, movement. And then the other is, is you were asking about actually using the Internet to disseminate information in a broad way. Yeah. There's a group called OneEconomy.org that publishes something called TheBeehive.org, which is a, a series of regional portals. There's a national information base of information. It's targeted. In, it's in English, Spanish, Farsi. I think it's in five languages. Mm. They have information about, you know, kind of health care, family, education, uh, financial literacy, so it's very much targeted to working people, especially you know immigrant populations or anyone who's low income who sort of needs to know information. I don't know, I honestly don't know how successful it is. I mean, it's widely used and disseminated, but a lot of people don't know about it, maybe because we're not we don't speak Farsi. So, it, but I'd I'd encourage um, looking at that because their next step now, um, for example, they have a Philadelphia portal, they have a San Jose. Bay Area portal, um, the beehive.org. You go on, click on the language, click on 
the, the regional portal, you can get information. They're now moving to what they want to call um, a 24-hour-a-day town hall format, which I think is web 2.0 tools to try and... They're just in the f formation. They're hiring someone to manage that. So, it, and, okay. and I don't know to, to any extent whether they engage political discourse in that, you know, where people actually get to discuss issues and policies, which I think is an important next step. Cool. So maybe that 24-hour town hall in multiple languages will we'll play some of that role. So invite people to look into that. Good. Thanks. One more? Ah. How's your fingers? I never really considered before this, uh, before this hour um, how being a mother played into doing this. One of the things I'm noticing about a lot of these local sites is a lot of them are run by women. And um, I didn't think about it until now, but one of my main outreach tools is my own kids. Um, I actually live right next door to the largest public housing project in my community. And I had never gone into the little um, sort of garden area inside because going by myself, people always kind of looked at me like, what are you doing here? You don't live here. But I started bringing my kids in there. And um, that was, and I sent, as a result, I got a, a bunch of readers and contributors because I had a kid's calendar. Um, of things that, that kids could do. And I think um, you're absolutely right that mother, mothers are the way to go. Like I actually intend to cover, you know, little kids' sports, basically, because every, everybody in town has a kid in Little League. Cool. Could, could I, Dan, beg, uh, not so much to sum up, but, but to, to raise one more thought to leave with you all. Uh, the, the idea of public funding comes up. Uh, to acknowledge, uh, again, as Dan did earlier, I think it was Dan, Jay Rosen's uh, experiment where he's gotten, I believe, 10000 bucks to start seeding some work that is, I, I find, a very exciting entry point to this idea. And I suspect that there, there are other people who have significant checkbooks who are watching this, and there is the potential for a, a, a real big door opening here in terms of uh, emerging uh, efforts at, at new forms of disseminating good reporting. Um, but with that, and this is the, the, what I'd like to leave you with to think about, is once people start passing, writing big checks, then they start becoming gatekeepers to who is essentially given the power to do ambitious work as reporters. Uh, there's a limit to how much volunteers can do. And once, once the money comes in, I think it's important that it's going to come in. But once it comes in, it's going to change the landscape of what we all do in this room. Uh, and I think that at the beginning of it is a good time to start thinking about that and thinking about how to interact in a, in a productive way to prevent uh, people with big checkbooks from, from putting up really solid, thick silos around certain ways of doing things. Anyway, that's, that's it. Thank you very much. Everybody.